You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what you always do with your word, which is to show us our need for Jesus and then give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be preaching from the prophet Joel this morning, because as I was reading over the lectionary passages, as you'll soon hear, something jumped off the page at me, and I try to pay attention to those moments of those first readings of the lectionary text and what sort of places a hook right into my heart, because I, as a preacher, always believe that when that happens, there's, there's something that God is desiring to do in me and then display before you and do in you in the act of preaching. But first we have to understand this book of Joel and what it's all about. It's, it's a little bit of an enigmatic prophetic book precisely because unlike other prophecy books, he doesn't necessarily give you uh, the markers that indicate what time period in Israel's life this is happening. About one of the only markers we have, we don't have the name of a king, we don't have kind of geographical markers necessarily, but we do have this indication that this is sometime before Israel was exiled, when the, the temple was still in action, and when priests and ministers were still doing their thing. Because you read in these first few chapters of Joel that the ministry of the priesthood is being both critiqued and encouraged and admonished here. But that's rather irrelevant to what Joel is saying in this book. When you read, there's only three chapters, you might even go home today and in your own time read the whole book because it's a, it's a wonderful journey. But the journey is a little dark at first before it gets light. And I guess little dark is, is too mild. It's really dark. It's really dark because what Joel is prophesying is what a lot of the prophets are there to do. To critique the people of God. To compare them to the righteous, perfect, and powerful law of God. And to say, you don't measure up. And in particular, the judgments come in form of of metaphors and actual prophecy of what's going to take place in the land. Joel begins with this metaphor of locusts destroying totally the land. And with that spills over and spills forth this vision, this prophecy of the total loss of grain and the total loss of fruit harvest. So uh, you'll hear Joel say things like, you're not going to be able to even offer your grain offering anymore and your drink or your wine offering to the Lord anymore because there's not going to be any left. This is what's for you. you know? And this severe prophecy, like all prophecies, is meant to sort of work something in the hearts of the people of God, which is why, as I'll probably tell you later, whenever you hear the Word of God, you need to ask not only was it, what is it saying, But what is it doing to me as it's talking to me? Because oftentimes the answer to what it's doing to me is getting at the heart of what's really going on here. Because especially if we just read the first chapter of Joel, we get the sense that that God's not a very gracious God. Really, it's not until we get to chapter 2 where we hear something of a word of of grace. But even before we get there, if you're reading chapter 1, and you're hearing God say, that your grain and wine is going to go to zilch and you're all going to be hungry and your land's not going to produce and there's going to be no more abundance. You get the sense that God says all this to provoke or evoke a response 
which is why we need to listen to the Word of God and ask not just what it's saying, but what is it doing to me and what it's saying. Because as God sort of provocatively says, I'm going to do these things, He's trying to drive them to a certain place. And that certain place is that turning point in chapter 2, verse 12, which says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. God says, I'm not looking for ritualistic repentance. I'm looking for your heart. That's what I want, because that's where the real action is between me and you, God says. And once God issues this call to repentance, God himself changes his tone. And his tone becomes the very words that he will use time and again in Scripture to actually woo us to repentance. There's always this dynamic going on in Scripture of God thundering forth with his law and offering threats and things that will, well, terrorize us. That's not too strong a word. See, God's trying to get us in a place where we're willing to see ourselves for who we are. And then he offers these words of comfort, and particularly in our passage here, we eventually move to, move to basically three words of comfort. And they're blocked off by these, uh, these imperative statements, three statements. Fear not, fear not, and be glad. In verse 21, and you can see the way he's crescendoing here. In verse 20, 21, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So the first thing he's saying is actually, he's telling the land itself that he has spoken barrenness into. Fear not, I've done great things. I'm going to reproduce out of this land. And then the second fear not goes to the animals that graze and eat off this land. Fear not, you beasts, because eventually when this land grows, you're going to see my provision again. And you'd think after saying fear not twice that he's going to say that now to his people. He's addressed the land, he's addressed the animals, now the people. But he doesn't. He says, be glad. Be glad, O children of Zion. And then he proceeds to lay out what precisely he's going to do. And if you've been reading Joel up to this point, God, in his grace and mercy, is going to reverse every curse that he spoke in the first chapter. All this death of the land, all this absence of the grain and absence of the wine, it's going to come back again. And God's going to give you this abundance, this total reversal. And it's punctuated by this statement. And here's a statement that jumped out at me. It says it twice. And my people shall never again be put to shame. My people shall never again be put to shame. And I ask the question, why did that jump out at me? Well, first, I, like everyone else in this room, live with shame. And second, it jumped out at me because I was thinking about preaching this on Thanksgiving Day. And Thanksgiving and the holidays, they're particularly a time when our buried shame rises to the surface. It's a time where we gather oftentimes with families 
or where we don't gather with families but feel the weight of the fact that we used to. And the reality is, as developmental psychologists will tell us, it's those years of formation, living in and with a, quote, whole or broken family, that work in us those tapes of shame that get replayed over and over again. And it's deep and it's lasting. And every time we have to gather for these culturally ritualistic uh, transactions like Thanksgiving and holidays and Christmas, we're confronted again by some of these things. And the question is, why ultimately are our families often the places where our shame resides? The reality is it's because intimacy, relationships that go deep, either just because you live together they have to go deep, or because you choose to enter into these intimate relationships, relationships that grow deep breed exposure. You know, at weddings, this is my choice, you know, balloon deflating wedding sermon. You know, there's this wonderful passage of scripture that sometimes can be read at wedding sermons. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now think about the process of sharpening a knife. Maybe some of you are doing that in preparation for whatever you're cutting today. Uh, whether it's your tofurkey, turducken, or turkey, or whatever your sort of choice of dietary cutting is, is going to happen. As you're sharpening your knife, what you're actually doing is exposing previously unexposed places of that metal. You're scraping off so that the sharper edges that weren't there before can be manifest. And so it's actually not a very sort of happy metaphor that God says relationships sharpen us because they expose previously unopened places. And our families are those places where you and I are just exposed for who we are. Because maybe with our friends, we can go home at the end of the night and hide and go to our dark places. But you can only hide your dark places from your family for so long because they're there with you in the evenings. They wake up with you in the mornings. Exposure, it manifests our flaws, our shortcomings, our self-centeredness, and our sin. And exposure of that kind over and over again, it just leads to shame. And when we're ashamed, we hurt others, creating more shame. Relationships almost always eventually lead to shame. What is shame? Shame is what happens when you and I internalize our brokenness. Psychologists often identify the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame is, I am a bad person. One psychologist puts it this way, shame is often confused with guilt, an emotion that we might experience as a result of wrongdoing, about which we might feel remorseful and wish to make amends. Where we likely have uh, an urge to admit guilt or talk with others about a situation that left us with guilty feelings, it is much less likely that you and I will ever broadcast our shame. In fact, we'll most likely conceal what we feel because shame doesn't make a distinction, listen to this, between action and the self. Therefore, with shame, Bad behavior isn't separate from a bad self as it is with guilt. And given that shame can lead us to feel as though our whole self is flawed, bad, 
or subject to exclusion, it motivates us to hide or to do something to save face. And it makes sense, therefore, that we would want to avoid our families. <laughs> or else, as we're entering into these family dynamics on Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, that we experience anxiety, go through depression all around the holidays, because these are the, the symptoms bubbling up of the shame rising to the surface that we've been suppressing. So it's no wonder that shame avoidance can lead to withdrawal or addictions that attempt to mask its impact. You know, one of the other important insights about shame that I was reading, shame avoids pain by projecting itself onto others. So imagine you have a family full of people who, honestly, because of the exposure, are all ashamed. There's going to be lots of shaming. And now add up the years and years of these projections and the hiding and the dysfunctions and the shaming. The Bible tells us that shame is at the center of the human condition and the human problem. It goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. I don't know if you paid attention to the language here. Before the fall, the scriptures say that Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. And then shortly after that, when it describes the fall into sin and brokenness, the first thing it says is Adam and Eve's reaction to that moment is that they saw that they were naked. Harkening back to this moment where previous to the fall, they were naked and unashamed, but they saw they were naked, and what was their reaction? They covered themselves up with fig leaves. They hid. They were ashamed. And you and I, we've been sowing fig leaves ever since. So what's the great hope declared to us today from Joel? In verses 26 and 27, Joel prophesies that God will do two things to banish your shame. Number one, he offers you abundance. And number two, he offers you inclusion. Abundance and inclusion. Verse 26 says, You shall eat plenty and be satisfied. And as a result, my people will never again be put to shame. Abundance banishes shame. Verse 27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and again as a result, my people will never, ever again be put to shame. I am in the midst of Israel. Inclusion. Inclusion banishes shame. Abundance and inclusion. The scriptures, they're actually really wise and insightful here. For it's the very opposite of abundance and inclusion, namely poverty and exclusion, which often produce shame. It's those things that often make us shame-filled when we start to internalize poverty or internalize our exclusion from someone or some group or something that turn into an understanding about our identity is shameful. And the funny thing about Joel is that these gifts of abundance and inclusion aren't fleshed out. For that, we need to fast forward the pages of Scripture. And it's only when we hear the words of Jesus Christ 
And when we witness his mighty deeds, that we understand that Joel's prophecy here was about him, Jesus. Jesus came to provide abundance and inclusion. We may pass by it quickly, but John or Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life, and he used this word, and have it abundantly. You see, it's not coincidental that on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he shared an abundant meal, a grain offering of bread, and a drink offering of wine with his disciples. And he said, this is my body, and this is my blood. What was he doing there? He was proclaiming that what Joel was prophesying, the abundance to come, was being fulfilled in him. That he is the true bread which has come down from heaven. That he is the true wine of abundance. And what he's saying there is that it's in my death and my life that you, brothers and sisters, will find your abundance. Because abundance comes in the form of dealing with our shame by dealing with the root of it. And the root of it is our sin and our transgression and the ways others have sinned against us. And Jesus said, by my death, by my broken body and my blood, I go to deal with that on the cross. And then he says, and in exchange, when I take all your death and all your brokenness and all your shame and bear it on the cross, I give you my life, my perfect record, my shameless report card, the report card that lacked any shame before the Lord. There was nothing for Jesus to hide because he lived righteously and he gives that to you as a gift. And when he's celebrating that drink offering and that wine offering on that Maundy Thursday, he's saying the abundance that Joel prophesied is found in me. So come to me and watch me deal with your shame. And then Jesus also says that he's the one who offers us inclusion. Hebrews 2.11 has Jesus saying these words to you today. Jesus says, I am not ashamed to call you brother. I am not ashamed to call you sister. The result of the abundance of his love is inclusion in his family. I want to offer a little picture that I heard a, a, a preacher once offer that made a lot of sense to me and hopefully gives you a lot of hope and understanding about the Jesus that you come to when you come to the table today and the, the Father that you come to as you walk around and openly and honestly deal with the real shame that is in your life. Imagine that my wife and I are preparing a, a Thanksgiving meal and uh, as we're doing that, our family is there, and we're about ready to sit down at the table, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, uh, someone knocks on the door. It's this random teenage kid, this boy, and uh, I open the door. I say, hey, can I help you? And he says, hey, uh, I'd love to come. I saw you cooking in there. I'd love to come and sit down and have a meal. It looks like you guys are ready to sit down. And I'd like to think in that moment that I'd be a, a great pastor and priest and a, and a wonderful kind of mature Christian. But in that moment, I'd probably say, 
get off my, my porch, man. And given that to Alabama, I'd probably pull out the shotgun that I don't have and sort of brandish it, brandish it and show them, you know, get out of my property. I, I don't know who you are. You're a total stranger to me. Leave. Now imagine the same scenario if we were getting ready to prepare for a Thanksgiving meal and uh, someone knocks on the door and that door opens and it's the same kid, but instead my son, my teenage son, he's got his arm around this kid. He says, hey dad, yeah, you've never met him before, but this is John. He's, he's one of my best friends and uh, he doesn't have any, anywhere to go for Thanksgiving and, and he's, uh, he'd love to come and and join us for a meal. What would I say as the father of that home? If he's a friend of your son, of course. Come right on in. The abundant life that Jesus gives us is that where we were once ashamed and astray and alienated from the Lord, Jesus deals with our shame on the cross. And Jesus gives us his perfect life and then he wraps his arms around us and he ushers us straight into the presence of God the Father. And God the Father says, well, if he's with you, if he's in you, come on in. Brothers and sisters, we have incredible hope in the midst of our shame because we have a Lord Jesus Christ who is our brother, our older brother, who puts his arm around you and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will bring you into the presence and the glory of God. Maybe you've experienced alienation and shame every, everywhere else. Maybe you deserve it, maybe you don't. But in the Father's family, today, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, there is a place for you. Give thanks. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.